What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. What is it like to think about the care and feeding of elite teams? Hi, I'm CT from Engage Rocket, and today to help me explore this topic is Paul Carney. Now, Paul is quite an extraordinary gentleman, I have to say. He's the Chief HR Officer of Carter Bank & Trust. He's also a published author of multiple books, and recently he's become certified as a prompt engineer, an AI prompt engineer. I don't know what it is that you don't do, Paul. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here with you today, CT. Very uh, excited to talk about the topic. Yeah, so maybe to start, could you tell us a little bit more about your work at Carter Bank and some of your personal passion projects as well? They're, it looks like they're very exciting and quite varied. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, about five years ago, I arrived at Carter Bank and Trust, and uh, you know, it was a bank, and we talk about this out there publicly, so it's nothing I'm revealing that uh, didn't really have much HR. There were no job descriptions, there were no performance reviews, and it's at that time over 800 employees across a couple of states. So it was quite amazing that this organization existed without a lot of HR. So I had the fortune of actually coming in and building an entire HR function from scratch. Payroll, benefits, talent acquisition, employee relations, talent development, none of that really existed in the company. So I got to build it from scratch, which was a great experience helped develop my expertise and knowledge. I brought it from an organization I worked at before that very capable HR function. Uh, in fact, they're, uh, I think, 13th year now in the best companies to work for uh, uh, category. And I wrote the 400-page document we submitted uh, over a decade ago to get that award. And it's a, ooh, a lot of data. So again, uh, that's what I'm doing today at Carter Bank & Trust. I'm a techie by trade, and I jumped back in as I see the power of AI. I got certified as an expert in the blockchain council. And then went on for the prompt engineering uh, certification because it really challenged me to figure out how I saw some of the things that people were doing with prompts and saying it's almost like coding. And I'm saying, wow, I'm a coder by trade. That's powerful that you can do those types of things and get it to get become an agent for you and answer questions. And then even agents now interacting with itself constantly. That's the other thing that I learned in the prompt engineering course yesterday uh, when I finished it up that uh, you can get it to actually act as its own multiple people having a conversation and going through to the end until it comes up with, here's the best solution, which, so anyways, that's my current passion is to figure out how to do that for HR. Let's unpack some of this one at a time. When you were at like building the systems up at Carter Bank from nothing, give us a sense of the scale, how many people were there in the organization at that time, and also an idea of like, how do you think about getting started? What was the immediate priority? And then how did you phase that over time? So the immediate priority was to figure out I had a staff of seven people that were doing HR things, but they were all were basically doing everything, which was basically just payroll because there wasn't much else of anything. And so I had to basically do a skill assessment to figure out who had what skills and knowledge. And one of the books I wrote was how to get certified as a PHR, professional in human resources. So I had the seven areas of HR with the, about 12 different bullets below it. I handed them that document and said, 
read this, tell me which areas you're excited about and want interested in, and I will guide you down there. So I literally made them turn from like a generalist and just payroll into a specialist in their areas because I knew I needed to build out talent acquisition, employer relations, talent development. I had to have those functions. So, uh, and I'll be proud to say five years later, one person left. She went to be a teacher, but I have not replaced a single person. I've added to it a couple more people, professionals, but I haven't replaced a single person. They all stepped up to the challenge and figured it out. So you're right. The first thing was structure. I had to get some systems in place. We had to get a human capital management system in place for a company that's 800 and some odd employees over two locations, two states, and about 10 locations as a bank. It was a challenge because you couldn't just pull everyone together in the same building in the same conference room and say, hey, let's all talk about this. Everyone was spread out. That was the challenge is to get the systems in place, identify the skills and talents on my team, and then start building each of those functions. So I spent a lot of time coaching, developing all of those, we call them associates, employees in my HR team to understand their world, what it means to be an employee relations specialist and do HR investigations, what it means to be a talent acquisition person and proactively find candidates before we need them and those types of things. Everything that you talked about is extremely human-centric, very human, people and process-centric, but then you're also kind of an engineer in how you approach <laughs> problems, which is super interesting. Yes. How did, how did you come to this unusual balance between the ability to influence and work with complex people problems while at the same time, like tackling complex te technology problems? The foundation that underlays it all, and it goes into how I describe myself, is the business layer is what ties that all together. Because I always tell people, I in the interview for this job, when they were looking for this person, um, which took them the longest time to find the HR person. They found a CFO, they found a CIO, they found all these folks, but they couldn't find the right HR person. Uh, and I think I'm the right one because they've kept me around. But uh, I describe myself as saying, I'm a business person that does HR. And that's what I think the business layer underlines everything about technology, human resources, IT, whatever it is you do, the business layer. So as I approach everything, that was one of the things I did with my team. There was there were some complaints that our team would someone ask a question of the HR team and they would just say no. And, it's, and I said to them, I said, there's never a no answer. It's find out what they're trying to do. How can we help them? If there's a way we can in the end, then we say we just can't help with that right now. There's never a no answer. It's what are they trying to do? So again, turned HR into that business perspective. Our job is to advise people. Uh, in fact, I say that to a lot to people too, is our job is to advise people. We're not the end-all be-all in HR. We advise folks. That's our job. My name is not on the uh, offer letter and my name's not on the termination letter. Their name. I'm just the advisor along the way. I'm an advocate for the leadership of the company, but I'm also an advocate for every one of our associates. That's a really clear way to communicate accountabilities with people management, actually. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. Yep. And I think that brings us very nicely to today's topic where we're going to be talking about what it takes to build and maintain elite teams. I thought you had a really unique and very enlightened way of looking at this. Could you talk us a little bit through about how you go about the care and feeding of elite teams? I've had the advantage of working with some very elite teams in a couple of different organizations. One was a technology group where I had some IT folks that could code circles around everybody else. Uh, in fact, back in the day, this was in the early 2000s, Three of the people I hired in that team did not have 
college degrees, but they were probably some of the best developers. I was one of those groundbreakers that said, I don't want a college degree. I want someone that can show me they can do what they can do. And, and so I had that fortune of running that team. And then I also, in my previous organization, before I came here to Carter Bank, an HR team, I had a learning and development team that was phenomenal. They had such cr- incredible skills and abilities. I could throw stuff at them and they could figure out how to do it and, and teach. And that was a 12, 15,000 person company. They could figure it out. And that was awesome. I, I have had the experience in there. And then as I did the research for my book, I started thinking about how to help people with their careers and that stuff. And then I thought about the, the sports analogy popped out, the concept of money ball and what happened with the Oakland A's back in the day of how that day, the gentleman figured out, that Billy Bean figured out how to take data and come up with all a bunch of new statistics that no one was even looking at. So as I started looking at the, the concept of the elite teams, I, I started using the sports analogies and realizing it, realizing it comes down to that the, the physical, the mental, and the nutrition, the, the care and feeding includes all three of those. And unless you've got all three of those components together, it's going to be difficult to be a star athlete, and it's going to be difficult to have a team that's really going to function well. I love that, that, that whole idea of nutrition, that strength coaching, and that mental toughness that we talked about. Let's unpack each of these in turn, right? So let's start maybe with the, the mental side of things, because as with any elite athlete, the first thing that you need to get right is the mindset and, and the mental toughness that they have. So how, how does that relate in the workplace context? It really starts with the concept of resilience. It's where it really comes in that mental strength. And then in the end, the result is high engagement. When the sports teams, you've got the folks that are highly resilient, can figure out how to get past those mental challenges of whether they're trying to get themselves to an elite level of performance and then performing in a game in front of a stadium of 80,000 people that are yelling and screaming at you. Uh, how do you solve that? How do you deal with that? Into the When you've got in a, in a conference room, when you've got a team facing some major challenges, right? It's that same resiliency. You got to build that in there that people can figure out how to solve problems quickly, how to learn that what happens is okay. It's all right for you to go ahead and, so, and figure stuff out on the fly sometimes. But uh, and then, of course, like I said, if you do that, it gets down to that level of what we call engagement. When you provide people the ability to have some autonomy in their decisions, when you provide people the ability to understand the purpose of what they're all trying to do. And that comes back again to the coaching thing. You can put together a team of stars, but if the coach is not bringing them together to understand their purpose as a team is to win the game, whatever they're playing, not that each of them get their statistics and, and get their individual uh, goals, but, but that, that they all come together as a team. And that's very common in the boardroom that happens in the business room, that you've got to do that same thing with your team. Yeah, that's such a good analogy because I'm thinking there's that idea of being very calm and under pressure, which the, the immediate person I can think of is like a Roger Federer. I don't know if you're a tennis person, right? But he's as cool as a cucumber, right? Throughout the whole game. And, but at the same time, like he's not playing in a team. Whereas if you think about a football team, they've got to not only be calm, but they've got to be aligned. Exactly. As you said, like in the ballroom, like they, they shouldn't be worrying about how many passes they've gotten completed or whatever it is. That's not what they should be concerned about. They should be concerned about is the team going to win and how do you do that in the corporate world? To a certain extent, like individual stats matter a lot and it matters a lot for each person's careers. It matters a lot for the careers of people under them as well. And that can lead to certain unproductive turf guarding behavior. Like how do you balance that with that idea of team and the idea of engagement and focus? If you study and watch how the great coaches have done that over time, even some great business leaders have done that. 
And I'll pull in because I know you're familiar with some military analogies too. Of how do the military armed forces do that same thing? And it really comes down to, I think, one thing, and that's the trust. You've got to figure out how to build that trust. You, know, you think about a military unit, a good sports team, and even a good project team isn't going to be really highly effective and get to that elite status unless they've got that base trust in each other, that they understand each other's capabilities, strengths, the weaknesses, what people bring to the table, and that they're able to put that aside to say, listen, I know I'm better at this than most other people are, but I'm going to do what I've got to do to get the team forward for the benefits of the organization. And it really comes down to that. Now, it's a long process. You know, it's not something you do overnight. You can't just shake the magic wand and say, everyone trust each other. It takes a lot of building of that team. That's that team building concept. And, and it starts with the leader. The leader has to and they have to engender the trust of people. In other words, people have to trust to follow them, and then they've got to get each other to trust each other. So it's a two-step process. The coach, the leader, the, the, the person in charge, the corporal in charge of the, the battalion, whatever it is, they've got to figure that out. They've got to under they've got to earn that trust first and then build the trust amongst the team. And that's the challenge. And that's I think where most people have a harder time and and, and if they would just study some of the ways that you could build that trust. And part of that's just caring about the people. When we mentioned empathy, the human aspect of it, it really comes down to really caring about those people that are on the team and making sure that they are the best that they can be. The second aspect of all of this is that idea of building strength. And I think we talked a little bit about the role of the leader as a coach. So let's expand a little bit more about that. Like, how do you see that happening? And what are some of the main things that we should think about? One of the biggest challenges, great coaches, and again, if you go into sports analogy and look at some of these great coaches that have managed some phenomenal players, elite level players of all sports, even single sports, like you say, tennis, there's a coach there. There's a coach managing that tennis player. So while it may not be a group of individuals on that court, it's one person and that coach still has to manage that person to help them understand their strengths and what they can do. It really comes down to understanding and managing, as we say, managing the egos and the personalities because some people can start to get larger than life. We see it happen in Hollywood a lot or maybe sometimes in the music industry. And it happens, of course, in the sports world where they tend to get a little bigger than their britches. And, and then that's the job of the coach is to help them understand that's fine. You really do excel at that one. But especially if you're on a team, you've got to understand how that fits into the team. And, and that's probably the biggest challenge that a coach has to start with, really, is to manage the egos and expectations of people when they join a team. And we'll use Messi as an example, joining uh, with Miami recently. He's phenomenal. He came from a phenomenal club and all the stuff is going on. And he's done so far. But he's going to have to figure out, and I think he's got the capability, don't know him personally, but I think he's got the capability to understand where he fits in the team. It's not all about him. And that's where you see not only the strong coaches, but then you've got your players who can become sort of the, the captains of the team. So it's really about how does the coach, the leader as a coach, pulling out the strengths of each individual on the team and nurturing them while at the same time helping them to mesh together as a unit. Would that be correct? Yes. And like I said, and good coaches, and whether it's in military units or you see it in sports teams and you see it in teams in the business world too, is they will identify who are the sort of unsung leaders of the group. And they will give them those captains. They will give them the challenge to say, 
help us bring this group together because as you could be the leader by title you've got the title um, you've got power through your title but you don't have necessarily the authority uh, but if you've got somebody on the team that they all trust and you can help that person develop as the leader then you bring that team around to you it's hard to have a really elite team without that person or persons on the team who can help the coach get them all to that level. The third and last aspect of the care and feeding of, of elite teams is the, the feeding part, the, the nurturing and the, the learning that comes from advanced nutrition. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. That's where it's about growth. You think about it when a young child grows from their five years old to 15 years old, especially in the, in the boys, there's tremendous growth that happens and there's a lot of feeding you got to do. That's true with people when they become professionals and they start to get better and become experts in their fields, experts in their uh, athleticism and their talents are being pushed to the limits. That's where you've got to make sure you've got the right nutrition in physical sports. It's, it literally is about the food and the hydration and those types of things. But in the business world, it's making sure you're developing those folks, making sure you're giving them the, the materials, you're giving them, setting up the environment where they can learn, grow, and push back past their boundaries. That's the thing too. Most people will never push past their boundaries and that they can be good people, they can be great people, but to get to that elite level, you've really got to push past your boundaries. You've got to be uncomfortable. You've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's part of what makes an elite person. And, and that's where that coach comes in. But you've got to provide that environment where they can continuously learn, help them understand that no matter how much they know and how good they are, there's still more to do. The concept of the learning and development, the growth of a person, it's got to be managed and it's got to be managed right. You can't just you can't just go attend a bunch of webinars and say, now I'm an expert in something. You've got to practice it. You've got to go out and do it. You've got to get hands-on, dirty, fall down, pick up, dust off, and move on because that's how we all learn those lessons. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact Community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. There, there are two, two main components to that, that it sounds like there's the learning and growth part, which I don't know how much you subscribe to the 70, 20, 10 model, but it feels like you're talking about the environment, which is that 70% of on the job learning and, and do, doing what you're learning. And then at the same time, the 20% is that coaching from the managers, which we talked about earlier, right. and only actually 10% is classroom training, which we can get confused with actual learning many times. And then I think you also mentioned a really important aspect of work, which is rest. And I think in Asia, you have companies in in China, for example, that have, they call it the 996 culture, which is essentially 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. And that level, that has not worked for many Chinese companies. It started out okay, but I think it, many in the Chinese workforce are now burning out because of that. What's your take on rest in the workplace? It's one of those things I will tell you in my 30 some odd years of working, I've never left vacation days on the table because I will take the days. I don't care what position I'm in. I don't care what I'm doing. I take my time off because I realize that's my relaxation and recharge time. In fact, in my role now as a chief human resource officer, I've jokingly said, although they know I'm not joking anymore, uh, if I take a week and I disconnect, I tell them all, you all can make the decisions because, and I say this to them, I'm not that important. 
if there's something really going on, I've got a boss you can all go to. You can go up to the CEO. If you really need to bring a big issue to the CEO, we'll help you figure it out. But I'm not that important. So, and, and if I can say that, given my job and the, what I've had to do, everyone can say that. So I try to drive that home to my entire team. I had a couple of employees when I first got to this bank, one woman who ran the payroll every couple of weeks, she had not, she would never take a week of time off because the one week was payroll and the next week would be not. And I finally convinced her, not only has she taken her time off, she takes all of her time today. She will take an entire week of payroll because she's got people now who can actually get payroll done without her. And that was what I said to her. I said, that's my goal. You have to be able to let people do the payroll. You can't just do it all yourself because, and I would say to her, you're not that important. Nothing against you, but you're just not that important. <laughs> but you're right. That rest and relaxation, that recharge time, even during the day, the mornings, I have my recharge time in the morning sitting on the front porch, I have a cup of coffee. I don't let the, I don't let work interrupt me. I do not bring my laptop out there because that's not part of that routine. It's I come back into the office and start my day and do the thing. So that is really important. That's that rest component. There's a great Sean Acor does a great uh, video where he talks about the happiness factor. And he says, every time we hit a goal, we just keep moving the goalpost. That keeps happening. You never actually achieve, he calls happiness. You never achieve fulfillment because we keep moving the goalpost. No, sometimes we hit the goalpost and we say, great, we're done. Take a few days, let's come back a few days later and we'll set the next goals. And you've got to do that. As business people, we've got to learn to do that, not to keep driving people forward with efficiencies and everything else. We sometimes have to take a break. Yeah, it's a marathon, right? And it's very zen, but the, the journey is the destination sometimes. We're all in this together and we should take a moment, appreciate that, and allow people to take time off. So I, I really like that. You have two those two components, like that long-term rest, which is taking a vacation, disconnecting and everything else. But even that day-to-day -day routine of building in rest in your day-to-day, -day, I feel like that's also super important for maintaining energy levels, uh, maintaining that focus that you can then have when you're on. Like when you're on, when you be off, right? Yeah. When I speak a lot to people, I, I always come up with this concept where I talk about people say, I don't have enough time. I don't have time to do something. And I'll always say to them, rephrase it. You got to be more honest with yourself because there's one thing Every single one of us, no matter where you were born, what gender you are, whatever you are, wherever you live, you get 24 hours in a day, no less, no more. No one can buy more. No one can give it up. You've got 24 hours that you get to allocate every day. How you choose to allocate that time, and I'm not judging, how you allocate it is how you allocate it. Now, if you choose to sit in front of the television for three hours, you chose that. You can't say you don't have time to go do some exercise. You chose to allocate your time. Again, not judging you, just be honest with yourself. Because then when you want to change and grow and learn, then you can say, maybe I'll allocate some of my time to this. Now, there's very few people in the world who have such schedules they can not allocate a lot of their time, but we all can allocate time for things. We just have to choose to do it. We have to flip that mindset and say, I allocate time to do this or not do that. Yeah, I feel like we could easily take this conversation another couple of hours and still be going. <laughs> but I'm afraid we're coming close to the end of time. So I'm pretty sure that many of the listeners who listen to this are going to want to reach out to you and, and ask more about some of what you've been talking about. If they wanted to do, what's the best way for them to find you? Probably on LinkedIn. They can come, come out and check out uh, on LinkedIn. If you search for Paul Carney or Paul Carney Works is my uh, domain, the name I've used across all my different social medias when I set it up a little while ago to publish the book. But uh, yeah, if they come out and find me on LinkedIn, please connect, send me a note. I'd love to connect with them and learn what they're doing, how they've helped with elite teams, or if they've got questions, love to share with them. Thanks so much for hanging with us today, Paul. I think this has been a very enriching conversation for me and I'm sure for many of our listeners. For those of you listening in, 
I hope you've enjoyed the show and have taken away one, if not multiple, good lessons from today's episode. Make sure you drop us a review and tune in the next time on the HR Impact Show. You can also go to www.engagerocket.co slash hrimpact, all one word, to find more recordings and more show notes from the show. So thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.